I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And history is only a story. To be sure, events happen, people exist, but how and why we talk about them and what we decide to study is a matter of choice. And that's the story. Our guest this week helps students of all backgrounds re-examine assumptions often made about history in order to reframe it in a healthier, more inclusive, and more accurate way. Dr. Anika T. Prather teaches in the English department at Howard University and is the founder of the Living Water School in Southern Maryland, a school that combines the pedagogical philosophies of classical education and the Sudbury model to foster independence and academic excellence in children. As a researcher, her focus is on building literacy with African-American students through engagement in the books of the canon. In the past, she has served as a teacher, supervisor for student teachers, a director of education, and head of school. Dr. Prather, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you are very welcome. Now, first things first, can I call you Anika? Yes, absolutely. Perfect. I don't mind formalities, but I much prefer using first names. <laughs> I prefer a more casual relationship unless, you know, I'm speaking at a conference of like a million people. That's different, of course, but we're having a fun conversation. So I'd like to keep it really nice and casual. And I don't think I can fit a million people in my living room. So uh, let's get started with the first question. Now, your educational pedigree speaks for itself. You've earned graduate degrees from New York University and Howard University, where you also earned your BA. You have a master's liberal arts from St. John's College and a PhD in curriculum and instruction from the University of Maryland. And there are many ways we could explore what you've learned and taught over the last 20 years. But I'd love to focus on how you've synthesized your learned and lived experiences to form the curriculum for your course at Howard University and your pedagogical approach at the Living Water School, which you co-founded in 2015 with your husband, Damon. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to start with a quote you had in your syllabus for the Humanities One class that you taught in the Howard University Classics Department in the fall of 2021. Mm -hmm. Quote, just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, so must we see the need for non-violent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood, end quote, by Martin Luther King Jr., now, as I mentioned, this quote was included in your syllabus, and much of your educational mission involves demonstrating how classical literature is relevant to African-American students today. So how did you come personally to love classical literature, and why do you feel driven to foster that love and appreciation for these texts in your students today? Well, my journey was interesting. I mean, my parents, growing up, my parents were very avid readers. Every house I lived in as a child until the day I got married had a huge library in it, wall to wall, floor to ceiling books. And I was always fascinated as a child being in a black home with black art, African art all around. You go look on this bookshelf and there's Shakespeare and next to Malcolm X and you have the Bible next to the Quran. And and my parents just were both always reading and then they had us read. We visited the library and we had a big love for C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and then I, you know, grew up in that. I think I kind of took it for granted. I wasn't conscious of how rich that kind of experience was until many, many years later. I went to Howard University and Howard University has always infused its program 
with classic texts. So at Howard, you know, I'm reading ancient Greek plays. I'm learning about the history of the ancient Greek and Roman period. I'm learning about the art, all of that. And again, still didn't see it. I mean, Howard would even have plays of like Medea or Agamemnon. And even then I didn't realize what was being given to me. Because when I left Howard, I just was very convinced that I wanted to only teach students, especially if I'm teaching primarily Black students, about Black history, about our place in this American story. And so around the time of I was teaching in public school and my mom and dad decided to start a classical school in an all-Black neighborhood where they would teach students about their heritage in conjunction with the canon. And I remember them telling me they were going to do this and they just had this big vision and they were up late reading everything. They were having board meetings at the house. And I was just so frustrated. I just thought this was just wrong, wrong, wrong. This is not what our children need. Our students need to know about their history. They need to know their place in the world. They need to know the narrative of their ancestors. And we fought back and forth about it. They kept asking me to help them teach at the school. I said, absolutely not. And then I got really frustrated with the public school. And this is not a slight against teachers. I don't want anyone to think that. But the system above the teachers, we have millions and so many teachers who faithfully serve in the public school. But sometimes that system doesn't develop the critical thinking. It doesn't encourage that, that sense of wonder and exploration and questioning that Socrates and Aristotle inspires. That's not there as much in a lot of schools. And so I resigned from that. And then I, dragging my feet, agreed to teach music and drama because that was my first love is performing arts. My BA is in education. My minor is in theater. I have a master's in theater education and a master's in music education. And so I was planning to be a performing arts teacher. And so I went to the school to just teach music and drama and, and we just had a blast. And I just happened to overhear the great books class and that's where it started. I became interested. I, I saw the students weren't engaging. They weren't connecting to it. I call myself helping the class by using music and drama to help them connect to the literature and experience the literature. And to perform those lessons, I had to read the texts myself. But this time I was reading them with new eyes, not the eyes I grew up with, not the eyes that, you know, Howard makes you take for your gen ed courses. <laughs> but now I was reading because I, I wanted to be able to show them how to translate the text through music or drama. I had to make sure I understood it and I could connect to it. And that instantly didn't take long. The moment I started assisting that class, I was hooked. And I remember thinking almost immediately, how did I miss this? How did I miss the relevancy of this literature to all human life? And the more I taught, the more passionate I became. Before long, the teacher was like, I'm going back to teach in elementary school. Why don't you take on this class? I gladly took on the class. And for six years, I taught that great books class. And that's what drew me to St. John's is because the more I got into it, I wanted to know more. I wanted to be able to to read with people who have read these more than I have. So they could open my eyes to things I might be missing. So, so now I'm in my 30s, kind of late to the game. And so I found St. John's College and saw that you can get your master's. And they still have this program, if anyone's listening. You can get your master's in four summers. And you just spend a whole summer on the Annapolis campus, or I think even the Santa Fe campus does the same. 
reading and discussing these works with people from all over the world. And St. John's, as they would say, that put the nail in the coffin. (laughs) That was the end. Those four summers revolutionized my life and I cannot forget it. I can't distance myself from it. I have fully embraced this body of knowledge. But what I experienced at St. John's was I was welcome to bring these texts in conversation with the texts of my ancestors, which has made me love it even more. And so then I began to teach it that way, where we're reading Plato. We might read, say, how it inspired Huey P. Newton or someone else, for example. We might look at how it inspired Frederick Douglass and so on. We would read the Bible, but we might look at how the enslaved people translated the Bible into song and their Negro spirituals. And so that constant back and forth between the canon and the Black classical tradition just really fused my heart to it even more. And then as I began to see my students latch on to it, that was empowering. Now, one more point to this is At the time I was doing that, I wasn't quite aware of how pervasive a Black classical tradition was in America. As I began to try to bring Black voices in conversation with the Western canon, I discovered, oh my goodness, studying classically is a part of Black history. This is what all of my ancestors were doing. From the time they came to America as enslaved people or were made enslaved when they got here, to my parents went to school. Before desegregation, this is how Black people who went to school were educated mostly. And so that was very eye-opening. Finding its connection to Black history was extremely meaningful for me. And we'll get to the historical history inclusion and integration of classical texts into the Black American tradition via the works of Frank Snowden and Anna Julia Cooper in a bit. But before we get to that, I would love to just dig a little deeper with you about your own internal journey to get to where you are today, because I'd just love to learn a little bit more about what was happening externally and internally for you Mm -hmm. that took you from the little girl who was getting into arguments with her parents about the relevance of these texts to where you are today. Because you talk a bit about that kind of light bulb moment that was happening due to external forces, but what changed within you in terms of how you were framing them and how did that tension between you and your parents resolve? I guess what was happening inside of Anika that made you open to seeing these texts in a new light? Discovering W.E.B. Du Bois's Souls of Black Folk and reading it was the turning point for me. Discovering him was an accident. I wasn't researching trying to find his writings on classical education. I can see the vision now. I was just relaxing on the couch at my parents' home. And I just looked over at the bookshelf, always books around my parents' house. And I saw Souls of Black Folks. So just flippantly picked it up and just started thumbing through it. And it fell open to this essay called Of the Training of Black Men. And at the end of it, a lot of people know this quote, but he kind of gives this opus to classical reading. My most favorite part of that is when he says, I summon Aristotle and what soul I will, and they all come graciously with no scorn or condescension. That line made me aware that it was not just about, I'm reading classics to show that I'm smart as you. I'm reading classics to feel some elitism. Du Bois was saying there is something emotional that is happening when I read them. And that emotionalism is, I feel delivered from the color line. 
I feel connected to all people. You know, you look at Du Bois and his work with the NAACP and, and a lot of his essays, and there could be the misunderstanding that he's just trying to elevate Black voices, but that's not really what he's doing. He had a desire for racial healing, but based on understanding the experiences of Black people. But when he says that, quote, I summon Aristotle and what soul I will, they all come without scorn or condescension. He wanted to be free of that feeling of inferiority as a black man in America, but he didn't want to do it in a vacuum. He didn't want to do it by himself. He wanted, he didn't want to have that feeling and then he wanted to be in relationship with all people. That awakened something in me because at the time I discovered that text, I was just starting at St. John's and I remember my first semester there feeling welcomed feeling like I can have conversations with people who don't look like me. And it's not always about the color of my skin, but we were puzzling over and working through texts that have been inspirational to humanity for centuries. And we found a common ground there. That was very liberating for me. And I even felt the weight of being black in America when I would step into that space, could kind of be left at the door. Not that I'm ignoring it and not want to talk about it, but I could just be Anika, the female, the woman, the girl at St. John's reading Socrates, just that simple. And we could talk about why his dialogues and the way he talked was inspirational to how I teach. And then as that wall was brought down, an actual real relationship happens and you can have actual meaningful conversation with people who don't look like you about these things that matter, such as what it's like to be a black woman in America. And the friends I got at St. John's, I still am very close to today. And we have all types of conversations because those walls were chiseled away through our conversation. So there was definitely a very emotional journey. And I'll say this last thing just to kind of prove the point because what was going on inside of me became evident. I went on to do my PhD after St. John's. I kind of, They kind of overlapped a little bit, but I went on to finish my PhD at St. John's. And when I applied, I was supposed to be researching the role of performing arts in the classroom, in the K-12 classroom. I was accepted into the program under that understanding <laughs> And the emotional change and evolution that was happening to me with me in classical learning was so troubling that I didn't want to research that anymore. And it was a professor at Maryland who noticed it. Her name is Dr. Snell, and I'll always be grateful to this one conversation we had. She said, you know, I was a grad assistant at the time in her office. And she said, you know, every time I see you, you're talking about these classics and how they're relevant to Black people. And I really think that's something you're passionate about. It was a secret I had, but and wasn't really telling anyone. I said, you're so right. And she said, you should research that. I said, but I don't think it'll be well received. She said, everyone here, every professor here had the freedom to choose what they wanted to research. And you have that same right. This is not your time to research what somebody else wants you to research. This is your time to choose what you're passionate about. You've got to follow your heart. And I changed my research focus. Like I made an official, you know, let them know I wasn't going to be researching that anymore. That was the beginning of a lot of struggles for me in my department. But I'm thankful for the leadership supporting it. But like professors were not thrilled about me changing over from that. 
that's irrelevant to your people, I was told, or all you want to do is just research these dead white males and just a complete misunderstanding of where my heart was and not even a willingness to hear my heart. And that was very painful for me, but I could not quit. I just felt like I have to do this. Once I found this truth, I could not look away. What you mentioned with the pushback that you were receiving from other professors about studying the classics was irrelevant because it was, you know, dead white matter. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a saying that seems to be going around in some circles today. I'm sympathetic to where that comes from emotionally, but in a way, people are just reacting to the false stories that they've been told by white supremacists of old. I think what's really interesting, and I keep hinting at Dr. Snowden, but Mm. someone like Aristotle or Socrates would not have had a problem with someone who looks like you engaging with them in discussion when they were alive. Yeah. We'll talk about this in a second. There is historical text that talks about philosophers and leaders from the African continent who Mm. wrote and spoke with and taught alongside the Greeks and the Romans. And so, it's just interesting how you know, this kind of fairly recent poison of race has kind of traumatized a lot of people. And again, in understandable ways, but we have to get to a point where we can move past it and realize that the lines that are supposedly between us are not only artificial, but actually rather young. Yes. This semester, I'm teaching my first time a Humanities 2 course, and it's called Black Women and Classics. So we're starting in ancient times. We did the Queen of Sheba last week. This week, we're looking at ISIS. And I'm using one of the books I'm using, an excerpt from um, Plutarch's on Osiris and Isis. And so I'm reading through this text and he beautifully writes about the intersection of Greek mythology and Egyptian mythology. This is Plutarch. This is not like someone from our time trying to explain it. (laughs) And the whole book, it is about Isis and Osiris, but it's also about intersectionality of the very different ethnic groups and continents that were in that time and how they shared these stories and these myths evolved into myths that were native to, you know, wherever they're from. And I'm reading this and I'm saying, this is what these ancients are trying to show us. Somehow we all are guilty of reading classics and not seeing that intersectionality. And that's very troubling for me. And because it's not hidden. What you're saying about the African philosophers, I mean, you can read a lot of different ancient texts, ancient Greek and Roman texts, and you will often see references to other continents, other ethnic groups and and their contributions to human society. And so it's not like you have to dig it up or go on some archaeological dig. You just open the same books that you've been teaching at the university or in the K-12 classical school and read the text with new eyes. And so when I was reading Plutarch's on Osiris and Isis, I was so touched by him constantly weaving in Greek mythology with Egyptian mythology. And that to me is symbolic of what's happening in the interworld. And that's why Du Bois says, I summon Aristotle and what's all I will. And they all come with no scorn or condescension because they acknowledge that wisdom did come from some places outside of Greece and Rome. It's us. We are the ones in this new time period, right, that have placed our issues with race on the ancient times. And we really need to liberate ourselves from that. Yes, totally agree. Whether it was 
like I said, white supremacists of old who were trying to whitewash the past in service of their own delusions, or, and again, sympathetic to this, as a reaction to that fiction, Black Americans of today feigning why those texts might be relevant to their lives. But it's all stories we tell. Yeah. I want to kind of loop in your parents and how they had an impact on you as a child. You have a podcast called Cush Classics. And in the description Mm -hmm. of the show, you wrote, quote, it is my hope to use classics and its connection to black history as a way to show how we can build bridges to each other. As we learn about how we are connected through the classics, may we find our connection to the present end quote, which is very relevant to some of the things you're saying on the show right now. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to learn more about the inspiration for the show's name, which was the camp your parents founded when you were young, Camp Cush. Why did your parents found the camp in addition to the school they founded that you mentioned earlier? And what did you learn at that camp? Oh, my mom and my dad are the inspiration for everything that I am. I just want to say that loud and clear. Even before the school, they're such visionaries. They felt that Black children did not know enough about their ancient African heritage, their Black American heritage, and their overall heritage as Black people. And so the camp started when I was about six. And every single, my bro- I have an older brother. We, we went to this camp every single year. When we outgrew the camp at 18, we became counselors. And we did that up until we got married, actually. <laughs> Each of us married in life, you know, things changed. But what we learned at the camp, we learned about ancient African civilizations. They would have scholars from Howard University who knew this information come and speak. There was, I think his name is Kane Hope Felder. We had a man by the name of Joel Freeman. And there was another gentleman named um, Brother Emmanuel. And they would all teach with maps and illustrations our connection to the ancient times. And we would learn about Kush, Ethiopia, Egyptian empires, and all the rulers there. Then we'd also, it was a Christian camp. Then we'd also go and we'd learn about the African presence in the Bible and how it fits into the overall biblical story and how God also had a plan for all people, no matter what color of skin you are, and no one is inferior. And then we went in and we'd learn Black history. We'd learn about Black inventors and Black politicians. And and even in the Christian world, we learn about Black missionaries because we don't hear a lot about Black people being missionaries, but there's a whole body of knowledge around Black missions, the history of the Black church. And I grew up with that. And so no matter where I went, I always saw the world as my story is just as important. And getting frustrated when I felt like my story was made to seem like it wasn't as important. That camp, I feel, I often tell my parents, was kind of like it birthed the school. It went from one week in the summer to all school year, you're steeped in this. And with learning about the ancient world through the eyes of ancient Africa, they continued that in the classical world, in classical education, still reading ancient Greek and Roman texts and learning about the history of ancient Greece and Rome, but now reading it and seeing ancient Africa was there too. And so Kush is the name of one of the mighty ancient African empires. Now, we've been teasing Anna J. Cooper and Frank M. Snowden Jr. for a little bit now, but I think this is a perfect time to transition. They've had a pretty profound influence on your life and work, and I believe you're currently in the process of writing about each of them for separate projects. Is that correct? Yes, I am. There's a book coming out with Classical Academic Press. I'm writing in conjunction with Angel Parham, and the name of the book is called The Black Classical Tradition Reading Freedom Through Classic Literature. 
Angel's part of the book gives a really deep academic, theoretical, historical explanation of the Black classical tradition. My part of the book tells the life of Anna Julia Cooper in connection with that story. So it's kind of like I'm writing it so that Anna Julia Cooper is illustrating everything Dr. Parham says in her part of the book. You can start pre-ordering at the end of February, but it officially is launched somewhere in the early summer, late spring. Yeah, and about Anna Julia Cooper, she lived in especially impressive life, which is putting it lightly. She was born a slave in 1858, went on to receive a PhD in history from the University of Paris, and is the fourth African-American woman in history to earn a doctorate. Yes. Uh, She's often referenced as the mother of Black feminism. So how has her work impacted yours, and what aspects of her life do you find most fascinating? Okay, I'm going to say something contradictory. I'm not saying this because I'm against feminism. I don't know if she'd even want to be considered the mother of Black feminism more than she wants to be considered an educator. That's what people don't talk about. They don't talk about her passion for education and that her main philosophy of education that she practiced was classical education. And she actually felt that this was the only education Black people should have, not as a way to assimilate, not as a way to forget their heritage, but to know how they fit in the human story. There was a discussion on Twitter today where I was discussing how I've been teaching now for two years at the academic level. This year, I've taught at Howard University. That's where I teach full time. But each semester, I like to have one foot in a non-HBCU too, because I feel like everybody needs this. And so last semester, I taught at Messiah University along with Howard. And then this semester, I'm teaching at Maryland. And then I end the semester with something I call mosaic discussions, where I bring both campuses or both sets of students together to discuss the allegory of the cave. One of the things I've noticed in teaching all these classes is Black and white students all are frustrated at the holes in their understanding of human history. Like I had a white student say to me, she looked like she was like really emotional. I cannot believe I don't know who Phyllis Wheatley is. I cannot believe I never heard about her. And all of these classes I took in high school, why don't I know who this woman is? And then Black students will say, all these schools I went to, no one ever taught me this history about myself. And everyone's arguing about, you know, canceling literature and getting rid of books. And the young people want this information. (laughs) They want to know the human story in its completeness. And we're actually hurting them. We think we might be protecting them. If you're Black, you're thinking you're protecting your beautiful brown chocolate child from the quote-unquote oppressive literature of the Western canon. I say that not to be mean and sarcastic, but I say quote-unquote because especially the works of the classics, ancient Greece and Rome, they're not oppressive in the sense that we know it today or the way we've misunderstood it to be. And then if you're white, you are, oh, I don't want to give them so much history that they start feeling afraid or guilty or uncomfortable about who they are as a white person. What we don't understand is that if we all just relax and just learn history, all human history and how it intersects, no one should come away angry, bitter, or guilty. No one should be feeling that. We should be feeling understanding. We should be feeling completeness. Oh, I see how this dot fits into this part of the picture. You should be able to get the picture of the human tapestry, I like to call it. And that should make you feel good because you can see James Baldwin makes this quote. I used to think, I I can't remember the exact words, but it goes something like, I used to think my struggles as a Black man in America were somehow just unique, you know, kind of in this isolated space. Until I began to read everything, 
And I began to see that my struggles were the same as someone who doesn't even look like me. And we find this commonplace. I feel like division, I feel like anger, bitterness is painful. That division is painful. Du Bois, that's what Du Bois is saying when he says, I summon Aristotle and what soul I will. And they all come graciously with no scorn nor condescension. You can hear the emotion in that passage that, ah, here we are all together. This is what we're meant to be. I think one of the reasons, and I think there are many reasons why we seem to be doing this conversation so poorly at the national level anyway, at least as far as the media is concerned. Yeah. This is a conversation I've had with multiple guests of this show, which is how to form a more universal and common identity. And we can make this specific to America right now. The tension that can kind of inherently exist between forging commonality while still feeling like you have a culture of your own. Yes. And I'll put the question to you because I think it's really relevant to the field of work that you do and also our national conversation, which is how do we allow different groups of people, however you want to define that, right? Either racially, ethnically, or whatever, in this tapestry of America, feel like they have independent or definable cultures of their own, right? And we can even hone this in on Black Americans, right? Like a heritage they are proud of that is unique to them while also realizing that as America becomes more integrated, for instance, white students, Asian students, Latinos, indigenous people, et cetera, and I think this is ultimately the goal, are going to want to feel as though those amazing Black thinkers and the famous people past and present can also belong to them too, right? Because I think that's one of the ways that we melt away these divides, right? But I think that there is a potential real tension that, again, I'm more sympathetic to when it comes to Black children and Black Americans. But I, I also can understand how it can also be kind of a confusing time for white Americans too, right? Because this whole idea of like, well, what am I now? And how do I form my new identity? And how can I talk about myself coherently while also understanding that for all of us to move forward, a lot of those lines that we've used to divide ourselves and who we are have to fall away. Mm. I think that's part of the tension that seems to be kind of in the air. I think people are having a tough time reconciling it. They are. You put that so beautifully. Actually, that was very enlightening for me right now. So thank you for that. And I felt that like as a teacher of K-12 students and I've worked with black and white young kids and you can feel that hurt that you're describing and, the, and you want to carefully teach history and awareness and empathy and compassion in a way where all feel welcome at the table and all feel like they can still be proud of who they are and where they come from. Sometimes in this discussion, this challenging discussion, you almost feel like on the one hand, there's a, I want to call it a misunderstanding that white people are being asked to not be proud of their story. And then there's also another misunderstanding that black people want white people to not be proud of their story. <laughs> and I'm going to say this, like a student of mine said in one of my classes at Howard, she says, I don't want them to hate themselves. I just want them to not hate my story because it always seems like they're trying to find a way not to hear my story or to limit my story being told as if that's enough. We don't need to hear any more of that. I'm tired of that. I said it when we first logged on and before the audio was rolling, I said something like, and this is what keeps coming to me. I really want to have a new conversation. I think that's one reason why we're struggling. We keep having the same conversation in the same way since the beginning. 
But there's a conversation we're not having. This conversation of unity, not how to have unity, but a conversation of unity. What are things that can draw us together? What parts of the American narrative can we all connect to? We can connect to all can connect to Abraham Lincoln. We can all connect to the Quakers. We can all connect to the martyrs, white and black, who stood with Martin Luther King. And so we don't have those conversations, though. We don't talk about that. We're either talking about the master or the slave. We're either talking about the oppressor or the oppressed. What about just talking about the human relationships that have actually tried to live out the promises of our country? Because they're there, but we don't have that discussion. We don't even teach that perspective in our schools even. And so that's what I mean by having a new conversation that frees everybody from these stigmas you mentioned just a moment ago so that there's a little bit more room to breathe and hear the stories, but in the context or conversation of hope and unity. I totally agree. Before we move on to the Living Water School, which you founded and run, I just want to briefly touch on Frank Snowden Jr. because we've talked about him a little bit. He also has a pretty impressive background, which I learned while I was prepping for this conversation. Yes. In addition to serving as a member of the American delegation to UNESCO in Paris and a cultural attache to the U.S. Embassy in Rome during the Eisenhower administration, He was largely known for his writings about Black people in the ancient world, including the books Blacks in Antiquity, Ethiopians in the Greco-Roman Experience, and The Ancient Views of Blacks, end quote. So how has his work inspired you? You've already touched on this quite a bit, but how has it inspired you? And what do you believe many of us, aside from what you've already said, are missing in our understanding of the ancient world? I love Frank Snowden Jr. so much. And I'm sad that the world doesn't know more about him, that there's not some statue or museum or room in a museum, a center devoted to this man. That hurts my heart. And I'm hoping one day before I die, I can do something about that if somebody doesn't beat me to it. He and Anna Julia Cooper have actually inspired me more than anybody. I love Martin Luther King. I love Frederick Douglass, Du Bois, of course. Everybody knows who they are. These quiet soldiers in this work have been so inspirational because they weren't doing it to make a name for themselves or to even change the world. They were just seekers of truth. And Frank Snowden was such an adamant seeker of truth that he even goes to do these archaeological digs to bring back this hard evidence of, look, see, look at this pottery. Look at these full lips. Look at these people. They were there intersecting. This is not just one group's story. And he brought back hard evidence that we can all, you can buy both of his books on Amazon and you can buy them. I mean, they stay on my desk and you can keep referencing them and you can constantly be reminded of not just the greatness of the ancient African civilizations, not just the fact that we were integrated into the classical world, but that there was a time that was not like what we're going through right now. And that every time I pick up his book, It's used as a reminder. That's where we need to get back to. There are classicists that know much more about the ancient world than I do. So I'm not going to try to act like I'm the expert. So I want to give a disclaimer here. Somebody just heard me say that and they're thinking I'm painting this fancy picture of, oh, everyone was just so happy in the ancient world. There was no racism. Everybody was happy. No, I know it was a, a hot, hot mess back then. I know it had its own vices. I'm just saying, though, that world did not experience racism and that presence of race in the color line like we do. And so Frank Snowden is just trying to show us that. 
And then what that does, because he does it in a way without being trying to be pro-black or as if only black people are superior to other people and all that stuff. It's a phrase I'll say sometimes. Somebody asks me, is your school Afrocentric? No, it's human centric. I'm not talking about colorblindness either. It means that we see people, whatever your ethnic background is, whatever your culture is, whatever place you're coming from, I see you. And I'm not going to try to whitewash you to fit into some, you know, universal story. I see you. And I recognize that your life, your background is an integral part of this human story. And I want to show you yourself in this story. And I want to show how your story matters to the larger story. And Frank Snowden, that's what he did. It wasn't for us to think we're better. It was for us to see we're included. And that was so important to me. And he did it so beautifully with such scholarship, sticking with the facts, sticking with evidence and without pitting races against each other. See, I'm getting emotional just thinking about this man. I wish I could have met him. I just think he's the most wonderful man. And I read him often to remind myself of this is what you're doing. So I hope that answered your question. I went on and on there a little bit. But. No, very much so. And, th- and thank you for sharing that. It's important when trying to figure out why someone is passionate about the work that they do to understand where that passion comes from and what inspires it. And so I think it's informative to understand your love and respect for someone like Snowden because it informs me and informs our audience as to why you're so passionate about the work that you do today. And I feel like he and Anna are often forgotten. Like if you think about it, Anna's name is thrown around in different spaces, but people don't really know who she is. They don't know the pain of her losing her husband as a young woman, how she never married again after that loss, how she devoted her life, even at the risk of losing her own job to trying to bring the classical tradition to people, the amount of sacrifice where she was educating black adults in her house, that passionate about bringing this to her community, but we don't know their stories and what they contributed is so important. It can be stunning realizing how much you don't know. I experience that all the time. Yes. Whatever generation you're from, it's like when you read history books, at least for me, when I was a kid, I'm like, oh, this is a history book. So that means that they put all the important stuff in there because, you know, it's a history book. And then you realize that even the hypothetically most inclusive, well-meaning history book, imagine the perfect history book for children created by the most altruistic committee imaginable would still not be able to, within its pages, fit all of the great and amazing and accomplished men and women throughout history simply because there is not enough space. And that's to say nothing of the fact that our history books over the course of our history have been less than perfect, let's say. Yes, yes. But there are just so many amazing people who have been part of Just Keep It to America, part of our story, who oftentimes, for sometimes nefarious and sometimes completely benign reasons, just don't get learned about. And I would say that's one of the things that I've enjoyed as a byproduct of this show, which is in preparation for talking to different guests. I've learned so much about America's history because in the process of preparing, I stumble across so many amazing people that I simply didn't know about. Mm-hmm. There are two beliefs that I have. I do believe that there oftentimes in our school systems, especially K-12, there is an intentional leaving out of stories. I do believe that. At the same time, I also believe there are many times where it's not intentional. <laughs> I know that sounds like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. I think people have been so used to doing life in one way yeah. that they just are stuck in that tradition of erasing stories and don't even realize they're erasing stories. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I try not to be judgmental or angry because I recognize a lot of people are just kind of, we're all just kind of stuck in this 
craziness, you know? Yeah, the way that I think about society, and I think it's largely influenced by my upbringing as a writer. I was inspired to read and write by my father, who wrote short stories with me when I was three years old, even before I knew how to write myself. And so, it's the lens through which I see the world, and it's really how I personally understand society. I don't excuse bad actors. I don't excuse people who have done terrible things. But I also realize that the society we create, the ideas that we have in our heads are just stories that we've been telling to one another. And even those that are on what I think we would deem the wrong side of history or the people we look at as the folks who have done bad things, while I don't excuse them, I understand that they were just being told stories by people who were told stories, by people who were told stories, by people... I love that. And you can take that all the way back, right? Yes, yes. And that sort of thing makes sense when we look at it at the individual level. It's like the first time when I was old enough to remember visiting a friend's house for the first time, like it kind of expanded my world. Because when you're a tiny little kid, you know, four or five, six years old, if you're anything like me, you kind of assume, oh, okay, so every family must run like mine. Every, you know, they have dinner at this time and they eat this food and they all sit around the table and have these conversations. Because, you know, like Mm -hmm. when I was five or six, like the world to me was my block and like whatever the restaurants I went to and my school. (laughs) That's it. That's it. And so I, I knew nothing of how the world worked because how could I? I was six years old. And then you go to a friend's house And it's the little things. You're like, oh, okay. So their parent talks to them that way. And then they're able to stay up until this hour. And then they watch these shows and read these books. But I watch these shows and read those books. That's society. Yes. We like the things we like. We tell the stories we tell. We inherit the terrible things we inherit because we're just telling stories to one another. And that is not to make light of how things happen and the terrible and good things that have happened throughout society. But once you realize that it's just stories we tell, It can be an enlightening but equally frustrating experience because then you realize all we have to do is tell new stories. (laughs) I love it. Yes. That's so beautiful. Please write that down in an essay, please, because (laughs) I love you keep saying things that are like really getting to me. And you're making me think of this new book my cousin got me because of this conversation we're having. He's a big reader. I'm a big reader. And we, whenever we get together, we have these discussions. He was like, Anika, you've got to read this book. So I've started it. And I think that's the premise of this book. It's called Sapiens. I've heard of it. I haven't read it. What's the general premise? His book is on a long list of books sitting next to my bed right now. It's ridiculous. The side of my bed is ludicrous, but it's called Sapiens. It seems like that is his thought too. the story. Yeah. Of humanity. It's telling the story and that we have to understand these are our stories. And so when we talk about people are going to think I'm just trying to Uncle Tom this conversation. I'm going to say this and I hope people know my heart. So when we talk about slavery, this is in no way belittling what happened to my ancestors. I mean, that grieves me. My grandmother tells the story of her grandfather being a slave and it's deep in my soul. You know, I have to constantly work through forgiveness to, to get past it. So I'm not denying the pain of that. Mm-hmm. But if you read all the slave narratives, especially the slave narratives of those brought here from Africa, not the ones born in America, there's one detail that is told in every slave narrative. And you know what that detail is that we rarely talk about openly is that Africans sold Africans to white people. So white people are wrong for even having that trade going on. But we contributed to that as well as a people. Now, if we tell that whole story, it kind of provides an ownership that all of us have to fix this mess. Right. 
So I hope somebody doesn't hear that and deem me some person who doesn't appreciate the struggle of her people or her history because I do and I've dealt with racism and I see it all around me and I get it. But I have to speak truth as I'm looking at this whole picture of this story. Yeah. Who are all the characters in this story and what role did they play in this story? Yeah. I'm sympathetic to the disclaimer you put at the front there because, you know, obviously it's a touchy subject. I understand, again, I understand the emotions behind people's reaction to hearing something like that. I understand the emotional underpinnings of it, right? Because people can understandably have their walls up because they might think, oh, are you trying to make less of, are you trying to whatever? But here's the thing. There's something that's happening in the world today that is very relevant. And I think that it's a decent analogy. It's something that my cousin, who's a lawyer, is deeply involved in, and that's child and adult sex trafficking. Mm. So understanding that the child was trafficked by a, a middleman, right? Understanding that the child was trafficked by someone to the person who eventually abused and did awful, terrible things to that child does not deny the agency of the person who abused that child once the child was trafficked. It's just understanding that that child and the terrible things that happened to them was because of a interconnected global effort to put that child where they ended up. But it in no way excuses the agency of the person who abused them. Yes. And we can understand that today in 2022. And understanding that there was a middleman that trafficked the child to the abuser does not make us think any more kindly of the person who abused the child. Right. And so I think similarly, to me, it's uncontroversial. It's understanding that the legacy and the terrible atrocities of slavery are no less atrocious because there was someone who provided the starting point. So Right. People will say that to me if I'm talking about racism and what my ancestors went through. I often, usually from white people, will get, well, Africans sold their own people into slavery. And so there's more to the story than that. And I'm glad you brought that up because that is a different, those are two different things. Yes. You acknowledging that there were people in different African kingdoms at the time that were selling people who were already enslaved, either because of war, et cetera. And just explaining that as a piece of it is a totally different thing than someone getting defensive and as a way to detract from the awful legacy of slavery, do a whataboutism. Those are two different things. Yes. Because even in some of the slave narratives, like I think it's Ola Uda Equiano talks about in his story, he's the son of one of the leaders of his tribe. They had slaves before he was kidnapped. Right. They actually had slaves because he does this talk. I believe it's Ola Uda. He talks about how the way they treated slaves better than he was treated as a slave. That's, he was mm-hmm. making a comparison. It's understanding the conversation that we're trying to have. There's a difference in the kind of distraction efforts or the... Belittling efforts, yeah. Exactly. That's an entirely different conversation from understanding the interconnectedness of humanity and understanding that we all have a part to play in making the world a better place. So this attitude, as we come into America, we see it, like Frederick Douglass tells a story. Now, now if we go from leave Africa, we come into America so we can see how this plays out with regards to we all have to take responsibility for making some changes. The story of Frederick Douglass, he tells about the first time he tried to escape before he was 20 years old. Um, he had this whole elaborate plan of how he was going to escape. And a fellow slave told the master. He um, had written out his pass and things in the master's handwriting. So he eats the pass so that they can't find the evidence. And because they didn't find it, of course, he was, you know, he was just reprimanded or I don't know if he was whipped or jailed for a little bit, but he didn't get in as much trouble as he could have. And it's because a slave told on him. Right. And so which reminds me of I'm going to go up a little bit more, which reminds me of the story of Emmett Teal. A black man showed the men who killed Emmett Till where Emmett Till was staying and was with them when they killed him. 
what is the pattern I'm showing there? There's definitely a, a race issue, right? And this race issue has created this problem that we have. At the same time, our people have participated in the issues too. This is why I'm trying to say, can we have a new conversation, a conversation that's based on truth, a conversation where we discuss the realities of racism and being Black in America and how it is around us. It is in our government. It is in our schools. It's, we experience it. It is in real estate. It is in the police force. Right. And I'm going to say that, and someone may decide to turn off your podcast and have deemed me something somewhere else. You see how I'm always stuck in the middle, Michael, right? The entire point is that there are systems, right? We talk a lot about societal systems, right? Yes. So there are systems that exist in different societies, and all those systems have incentive structures whether we're talking about race or the markets or anything, right? Every system, however defined, has different incentive structures, right? I experience these incentive structures when I go to work, okay? I'm supposed to show up on time. I'm supposed to do X, Y, Z, and I want I need to get this project in, and I'm incentivized to act a certain way, right? So right. even in a society that has horrific racial structures, they still provide incentives for both the favored and unfavored class. So whether you exist in the favored class or the unfavored class, ultimately in your one small short life of 80 years or less, you're responding to incentives. And some people respond to those incentives by betraying people of their same class, by doing horrible things, right? But I think if we focus in on the fact that we all have personal agency to act within these structures and we can respond to the bad incentives or we can strive for better ones, it's okay to talk about how different fallible human beings act within these structures and sometimes did terrible things because they were incentivized to, but how all of us moving forward as humans with agency can act in different ways no matter what the structures are. Yes. And you know who's a perfect example of that is Viola Luyuzu. I talk about her all the time because I just want to honor her name. She's another one that is in nobody's history book and it just baffles me. But she was living in Michigan, a stay-at-home mom of five children in Michigan. She was watching the bus boycotts and she saw this need for drivers since, you know, Black people weren't riding the buses. So she says, you know, I'm just going to go down for a weekend and I just want to do my part. I'm up in Michigan. I know it's safe, but I want to do my part and help drive Black people to wherever they need to go. So she leaves for a weekend, is driving some people, and is chased down by the KKK and murdered by the KKK. And she's white. That's agency. That's the heart of compassion I'm talking about, where she's not just comfortable sitting in her, you know, her little home with her children, but she sees this thing going on and she's like, I want to do something about it. Yeah. And we all have the free will to recognize something is wrong. And when we say the conversation is hard, I'll say it honestly, one reason the conversation is hard is because no one wants to really admit to anything. On one hand, we have people just trying hard to disprove racism exists, to disprove that there's racism in the systems around us. They just don't want to believe it. No matter how many times I may tell you about, like today, even today, a policeman for I don't know how many miles, a policeman got behind me and followed me all these many miles. I was so nervous. And I'm talking to my kids. I said, guys, a policeman's following me. This happens to me all the time. And I'm driving the perfect speed limit, making sure I'm putting on my signal because I'm like, I'm not going to give this man any reason to pull me over. And this man followed me so far until finally he just, I think he decided, okay, she's not going to do anything. And he just turns off. But it was the craziest thing. But that happens to me all the time. 
And if I'm telling you that as a black woman and you come back and tell me, oh, there's nothing wrong with the police force, I'm offended personally. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Because those are my experiences and those are experiences of my brother, my family members, my friends. This is our life. So when black people are telling you, this is what I experience on a regular basis and I want that to change, but yet you'd rather argue with me and say there's nothing wrong with this situation. Yeah. That's offensive. At the same time, we as black people have to say, what role can we play to also change the conversation? And one way we can change it is creating a safe space for healing conversation instead of the defensive or the angry and allowing people to be able to have conversations, to ask questions as they're on this journey for understanding and connection. And it's very tricky to have because you have to suspend some things. You have to humble yourself in a lot of ways to be able to do that. Oh, absolutely. It comes down to a fear of being vulnerable, which I think is a understandable and eminently human fear. And I think those two things are thematically connected, right? The idea of worrying that the acknowledgement that there were people in Africa 300 years ago who were part of the slave trade, the reaction and an understandable one is, does me acknowledging that mean that you're indicting me, a black person living in America today of being somehow involved or complicit in the slavery trade, right? <laughs> which is, an, again, an understandable fear to have because it requires a kind of vulnerability to internalize that fact while not taking it personally. Yeah. And the same thing with a white American today, emotionally similar, not structurally similar. And I had this discussion with a friend of mine, I think back in 2020 or something, he went to a, another HBCU, Morehouse, and we were talking about his experiences as a black man getting pulled over quite often and about how a lot of his white friends, friends he'd known for a very long time, until the summer of 2020, either thought he was exaggerating or it was just coincidence or it's, you know, whatever. And come the summertime, a lot of those same friends, good-hearted people started like texting or calling him and then apologizing. Like, I'm sorry for not believing you. I genuinely didn't even realize I was writing you off. Right. I just couldn't even comprehend that you'd experienced that because I never had. Yeah. I think it's emotionally connected because speaking from the quote unquote white perspective, right. making peace internally with the fact that someone that you might consider a dear friend or a loved one is experiencing the world in such a diametrically opposed way to you, and you've been potentially ignorant to it, and you potentially are so ignorant to that fact that you don't even believe your friend when they're telling you what's happening, can lead to such an overwhelming feeling of guilt and complicitness that that feeling in and of itself can cause a kind of overreaction that can lead to an angry response that goes in the other direction. Because if you're not prepared to do the internal work of realizing that, one, yes, it exists. Two, yes, it's hurting a lot of people. But three, it's not about you personally. Yeah. And that you don't have to carry that guilt around. You just have to do the work once you know to make the world a better place. But that feeling of tension and pain that you feel when you have to confront that can be so terrifying that a lot of people, instead of internalizing it, run away from it. And that leads to a lot more pain that could have been avoided. And this is why I love classics. And this is why I love the canon. Because I feel like it helps. I go back to what we started when Du Bois says, I summon Aristotle <laughs> and what soul I will. And they all come graciously with no scorn or condescension. Something about if I could just get people to try it with me. Something about reading that old text, taking us outside of America, taking us out of our time period, outside of the color line, and having this conversation with these old authors 
and just having a regular human conversation about our personal experiences without theories, without politics, without sides, without left, right, up or down, just us and Plato, us and Jane Austen, you know, us and Shakespeare, just this plain conversation about how does this story connect to me in my everyday life? Let me give you a good example. So we were talking about this week, we read this old text. I wouldn't call it ancient, but it tells an ancient story. It's, I hope I'm saying the name right. It's called the Kebra Nagast. It's an old Ethiopian text that tells the story of the Queen of Sheba. And we're discussing it and explicitly talks about the, you could get a sense of the romantic relationship between Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. And we weren't talking about race. We weren't talking about anything. We talked about what it feels like to find your soulmate. Anybody can relate to that. The stress just kind of fell off our backs and we're sitting there and I'm talking about how I met my husband. One girl is talking about how she met her girlfriend, one girl from India who's just got here. She's a freshman at Howard, straight from India, talked about how she is in love with her childhood best friends. And everybody started talking. And then one girl was like, I can't wait to meet my soulmate. Like, but we're talking about a book that's talking about an ancient text. And the reason we're talking about the Queen of Sheba is because the previous class, we discovered a quote by Alexander the Great talking about the beauty of the Queen of Ethiopia. Right. I was just trying to show how these ancient people weren't as messed up by this color line. They didn't have a problem seeing the beauty of dark skin and embracing their contributions to humanity. And so after we read that quote from Alexander the Great, we then wanted to read an actual text closer to the truth about the Queen of Sheba. And so we read the Kebra Nagas. I hope I'm saying it right. If anybody's Ethiopian, I'm saying it wrong. I'm sorry. But I'm sharing that as an example of these texts can somehow kind of take us out of this heaviness of discussing race and being in this space that I'll say Andrew Johnson brought in after Abraham Lincoln was murdered. This Jim Crowness that continues to haunt us. We're still there and we're still fighting to get out of that vicious cycle. But when we read a classic text, and that's what Du Bois was describing, I'm transferred to a world that's not still haunted by the ghosts of Jim Crow, but I can kind of escape it and just sit down and dance with them in gilded halls and sit down and talk to Shakespeare and see what's up with him. And we can relate to each other's human experiences. And what it does is it begins to chisel the walls down a little bit and create a safe space. It's an exercise, I think, almost reading these old texts of humans from long ago that aren't affected by the racial issues of America. It's an exercise, like an icebreaker to kind of get us to connect. And then from that, maybe we can have conversations that are more meaningful and effective. I agree. (laughs) That's very well said. I want to make sure we spend some time talking about the Living Water School. I would regret if we didn't Now, I've had the good fortune to talk with two other school founders on this show. Ray Gern from San Francisco, who's the founder of Higher Ground Education, which follows the Montessori method. Yes, I've heard of him and the school. I don't know a lot about, but yes, I have. Oh, great. That school follows the Montessori method, which teaches children with a large focus on self-directed activity and collaborative play. I've also spoken with Catherine Burblesing. She's out of the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. She founded the Michaela School, which adheres to a more top-down approach in which staff lead the classrooms and all the children and staff adhere to a clearly defined and strictly enforced set of rules and codes from their behavior to their clothing. And so while those two schools may not share much in terms of a common pedagogy, but they're both able to achieve really amazing results with their students. And that's why I find the field of education so interesting, Mm -hmm. is that a multitude of approaches can lead to academic excellence in children. 
And so I'd love to talk about your educational approach, which is a hybrid of the Sudbury model, which focuses on self-direction and independent learning, and the classical approach, which relies on structure and more regimented learning environments. But before we delve into that, can you share what led you and your husband, Damon, to found the Living Water School in 2015? My oldest son told me as a toddler in his own powerful way that he was not going to cooperate with traditional learning. And as a black boy, full of life, full of fire, his name means the spelling Dylan means like a lion. I chose that spelling D-I-L-L-O-N because it means like a lion. And that would be him. Preschool let me know because I've been in education for so long. I could look at him and his experiences in preschool and always being in timeout and always his favorite line was, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. I was like, this is not going to go well for him. K-12 is going to be a situation. He was in K-4. and I knew that the kindergarten year was coming up and I knew something had to be done. So I began to look for schools where I felt like he could thrive. I couldn't find any. In the neighborhood I live in, the schools aren't that great. And so we thought about homeschooling, but he has this thing that if he's not socialized, he's kind of weird. He's not like this anymore. But back then, he, he needed to constantly, daily be in interaction with other kids to learn social cues and all that stuff because he just didn't pick up on them as well. And so... I said, I think I'm going to have to start a school to really meet his needs. His sister was a baby and his brother was one. And I said, can we start a school? So my husband had this idea if we could get like 12 students. The plan was just, it was just supposed to be me and 12 kids. <laughs> and I had found the Sudbury model and knew that this was the kind of learning my son needed to do. My husband didn't like all the freedom. So the school is a product of me and my husband not being able to agree on what kind of philosophy to use. <laughs> So half is inspired by my husband. That would be the classical side. And half is inspired by me, which is the Sudbury side. And I happen to have now fallen in love with both. And the way it works is we don't mix the two in a sense of it's really split in half. Half of their school time is doing classical education and half of their school time is freedom. And by keeping it separate like that, I feel like I can walk true in the philosophies. And then the overarching idea, too, is that if they have assignments, Parents are not allowed to micromanage it, make them do it or do it for them. Just let them feel the consequence of not having their assignments done on time. And what it has done is it creates kids who care about their work and care about success and care about their future. We don't make you go to college. You have to decide, I want to go and do what's necessary to get in. We have students that choose their colleges, fill in their own applications. Then will ask me to write a recommendation letter as opposed to me saying, do you need me to help you fill out your applications? It's a very different way of thinking. And it happened to work. My son blossomed and he still continues to blossom. My other two have done well in it. And that's how I got here. I find the hybrid approach that you're talking about really interesting because as you mentioned, half the day is spent in the Sudbury model. Half the day is spent in the classical model. Mm -hmm. And your school teaches children from ages two to 18, which is a pretty wide swath of ages. How do children, especially younger ones, respond to that midday change? Because to go from one educational method to one that is, I guess you could say in some ways, almost thematically, diametrically opposed, right? The idea of self-directed learning and a lot of freedom of expression and how you learn to the classical structure, which is more regimented. Does it take a while for children to adapt to that model? And how do they navigate it? 
now we're actually just K through 12. We've become a no longer a brick and mortar school because we've started to reach students from all over the United States. And so we are virtual now. So we're kindergarten through 12. When we were in the building and we had the preschool, it was all play-based, a lot of Charlotte Mason philosophy as well, with a lot of read-alouds and creative play and nature study and ex- exploration and and my daughter came up through that program and no pressure to read by the time you're five, those kinds of things. And the younger ones, if they've come up through the school, through the younger group, they come up being very self-assured and very decisive. I don't want to do that. I'm not interested in that. And they can communicate really well because they're allowed to just talk all the time. They can make decisions. They can think for themselves. They can solve problems. They learned that the assignments that they're given are for a purpose to help them in life, not just to get a grade. With the older kids, if they've been in the school for a long time, it's fine. If they're coming to me as an older student, it's definitely a shift because sometimes you'll get students who are so used to being told what to do, they don't know what to do with freedom and it frustrates them. Then you have students who love the freedom so much, they don't want to have any responsibility. So it takes some time to transition to a place of taking responsibility, but yet walking in freedom. Yeah, it seems like it could be a really beneficial approach for a lot of children. It definitely would have been beneficial for me. My mother says the same thing. I wish I had that school when you were, because I hated school. I was awful. Awful. Yeah. Because <laughs> I liked the ability, and I like today, the ability to be able to express myself. But I also find that I flourish best when there is some kind of structure for me to flourish within. If I don't feel like I have any direction I can point myself, I, I can flounder a lot. But I also feel if I have too much structure that I feel so confined that I don't express myself much at all. So I think the hybrid approach, while at first blush, it might seem counterintuitive, it seems like it's really helping kids. And I spoke yesterday with Sherry Yates, who not only works with you, but also has had two children who've either attended or are attending the Living Water School. I believe her daughter just graduated Mm -hmm. and her son is currently enrolled. And the school's hybrid approach was able to attend to both of her children's needs. I think her daughter preferred more structure and benefited from the classical approach, while Sherry mentioned that her son thrives in environments with more free expression. Mm -hmm. We spoke for a little bit yesterday, and speaking on your teaching specifically, she said, and I wrote this down, quote, I love the way she, meaning you, explores the topic. My son has learned a lot when it has come to the classics, end quote. And I imagine in ways that he may not have been able to in a more traditional and formally structured environment, because I've never met her son, but if he's anything like me, let's take math as an example. When I was a kid and I was in math classes, it was always the class that I performed the worst in. So if you look at like my English class, A, history, A, debate, A, anything that involves storytelling and what is history, if not just a very long story, anything that involves storytelling, I would just almost automatically get an A because I understood it. And if I understood it, I could engage in it. But with math, which is very structured, and there's only one answer to a question, I found it hard to relate to. I found it distant and cold. And so every single time, C, C minus, C, C plus, C minus, C plus, until one time in seventh grade, I had a teacher, I want to say Mr. Logan, and that was the only class, only math class from kindergarten through senior year in which I got an A. And it's because he made math relatable to me by incorporating stories and making it something that seemed palpable and something that I could relate to my life in ways that the very dry and distant math classes that I took in other years just 
I couldn't relate to them. And so making education accessible to different children and meeting them where they're at, I think is so important. And I think it is a testament to the Living Water School that Sherry's children with such different needs and her daughter and son being so different in their educational pursuits and needs, both seem to flourish at your school, which I think, again, is a testament to your hybrid approach. It's something for everyone. And she also spoke about how the school emphasizes outdoor activities, having weekly hikes in nature. And she mentioned even there was a a recent two-night camping trip. And I believe this approach was informed by an educational philosophy known as the Cedar Song Way. Yes. So how did you come across this philosophy and how has it influenced Living Waters' approach? Our school was a wonderful place when it was in the building. It was just a community. Like we had student court every day so we could resolve all of our, any conflicts. A student can write up a teacher, teacher can write up each other. And we just, there was no principal's office and things like that in the traditional sense. It was just go to court if you have an issue and we could talk it through. There was that peer mediation. We worked through, we, we made plays, we did our work. We had a portfolios where we could file away our work so our parents could see what we're doing. And it was definitely like this whole culture. The virus comes and we're like, what are we going to do? Just before it got here, I told the students, we're going to have to go online. I want to make sure you all are ready. So there's no drop in how we do things. What is something that you need to survive being online? And they said, we want to see each other at least once a week. And so when I found out that being outside was a safe way to get people together, I talked to the parents. I said, I'm going to host all of us going hiking every Friday, but I wanted it still to be a meaningful learning experience. So a friend of mine, Rachel, if you hear me, when I was going through trying to figure out how to handle this outdoor time, she texted me this information about Cedar Song and the nature schools. And I became just a huge fan of it. And it's just basically was like our school, but outside. And you go outside and you just let nature speak to you. You let nature teach you. And you re- and there are these questions that the teacher may ask just to kind of get them to reflect. And what is this nature saying to you about the world and about the system of nature and all this other stuff? What are you noticing about the way the sun is and how the water is flowing and what the birds are doing? And, and I began to implement that. I reached out to them with some different conversations that they were hosting online And I began to continue to read up and implement that. We created a whole website called the LW Nature School. And yeah, we just chart our journey, just trekking through nature. We've gone to, there's a place here in the DC area called Great Falls. We've gone and hiked along the waterfalls and just hoping to do the Harriet Tubman Trail next month. And it's been great. And it just brought us together, kept us connected. We've done bonfires. We're just outside and the kids roasting marshmallows and just enjoying nature. And and I've been able to even tie in the writings of Henry David Thoreau, as well as George Washington Carver, who both were very much naturists too, into it. So before we get to our final question, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about your two music albums. You used to sing jazz professionally with your own band, right? Yes. So what does jazz as an art form, as a music genre, mean to you personally? And do you ever miss performing? Oh, gosh, I love jazz so much. Jazz, to me, tells the story of Black people. You know, its roots in picking up the rhythm of Africa and then the blue note of the slave singing the Negro spirituals all meshed together to create this improvisational masterpiece. It's my favorite genre of music. And most jazz musicians, interesting enough, are classically trained musicians. 
this story reminds me of what I'm saying is happening with classics and the black classical tradition is black people took classical training in music and wrote their own genre of music. Just like black people took classics and wrote their own story from reading classics. And it just reveals our creativity, the depth of our art and how we express ourselves through it. So yeah, I did that for quite a few years. When I went to get my master's in music at Howard, I was actually supposed to do jazz studies, but I felt more drawn to educating people through music than just performing. And so I preferred to use music as a way to educate and uplift as opposed to just being a superstar or whatever, as you would say. And that makes it more meaningful for me. So I don't miss performing, actually, at all. And I just incorporate the singing in my presentations or as I feel led. Performing was very stressful. And when I got married, it took me away from home a lot. So I really love being with my family, my kids, my husband. So I stopped doing it and I, I have not looked back. Well, from everything that you're doing in the multiple communities you serve, it sounds like you have a very full life, jazz or no. So I can understand why you don't miss it. That takes us to our final question. And there is a question that America has been struggling with since its founding, a question rooted in its original documents, in the stain of slavery and segregation, in its long and complex history of immigration and more. And it's a question of identity. What is America? Who are we as a people? And what should we strive to become? And your work exists at these existential intersections as you explore and interweave the Black American cultural tradition with what we call the classics of ancient literature to form a tapestry that is cohesive and inclusive. So, Anika, as we continue the everlasting discussion of what it means to be American, from your perspective as an educational leader, what is our future? Where do we go next? There are days where I do worry that just when you look at the overall atmosphere of things, that it looks like we're going to a place of more division. But then I meet people like you and others that I'm interacting with on Twitter, trying hard to block out the noise of the negativity. And I almost feel like where we're headed next is that while the world is going insane, there will be a remnant of us who are trying to heal. And my hope is that from that little spark, a fire will grow. That's my hope. But if it doesn't happen, that we find ourselves warmed by the fire we created amongst ourselves. And so I say all of that because I want to relieve myself of the pressure that the world has to change. It's a verse that, that's applying to Christian living, but I'm going to apply it to what we're talking about. If you all would just bear with me. Joshua, he's the one who leads the children of Israel after Moses. Basically, he tells the people, y'all can do what you want to do. But as for me and my house, this is what we doing. <laughs> he says, we're going to serve the Lord. But I, that's my own summary of that verse. You all can do what you want, but me and my family, we doing this. And I say that to all of you out there who may be so tired of this old conversation. And it seems like we're never going to get off of this treadmill. So I'm asking us to get off the treadmill together. And it doesn't have to be a lot of us. Doesn't have to be the whole world believing us or agreeing with the stance we've taken. But maybe some of us can come together around this fire 
warm ourselves and find comfort, find healing, find connection, find hope, and just see where that takes us. Well, to embrace that metaphor of people warming themselves around a fire, especially in the age of the internet, in the 21st century, when connecting with like-minded people has been easier than ever, and finding new voices has been easier than ever. This is going to sound super cheesy, but I'm just going to go with it. At nighttime in a desert, it's very easy to see a fire from a distance, even if the fire is rather small, and if only a few people are gathered around it. So I think those two things can go hand in hand. It can feel impossible to change the world, and it's not on any of us to try and change it. But it only takes a few people gathered around a fire in darkness to attract others. And soon, maybe a lot more people will be gathered around it. So that's my small way of saying that I'm really appreciative of the work that you do, Anika. I'm really glad that I found you on Twitter before <laughs> before I exited that platform. <laughs> and I'm really glad that we could have this conversation today. Yes. Because I find your work inspiring. And I think that it points us to a new direction that America can go in. So thank you for your work and thank you for your time. Oh, and thank you for having me and giving me a space to talk. Thank you. Tune in next week for a conversation with author of Divergent Mind and founder of the Neurodiversity Project, Janara Nirenberg. Thank you for listening. And wherever we go next, I hope you'll be there too.